Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Trinity Rep. Celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years. March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to being a renewable energy partner for New England and working to fight climate change. Learn more at sunbugsolar.com. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan live from our GB8 studio at the Boston Public Library. An ancient Buddhist saying is, you only lose what you cling to. That might be reassuring for the Buddhist monks of Thailand who are clinging to unwanted pounds. It turns out nearly, this is unbelievable, nearly half of the monks are obese. And a lot of it has to do with the high-calorie offerings that Buddhist devotees are offering them. Joining us to talk about this, how iceberg lettuce is becoming a wedge issue with people, thank you very much, continually dissing it as an inferior green, and how American farmers are getting caught up in the crosshairs of Trump's trade wars, is food writer Corby Kummer. Corby's a senior editor at The Atlantic, columnist for The New Republic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. Hey, Corby. (laughs) Hey there. Hey, Corby Kummer. Well, well, let's, uh, before I get to my excitement over the iceberg lettuce coming back (laughs) into popularity, I want to start with some bad news. I'm not sure how bad it is because this is from the South China Morning Post, which obviously would be more inclined to uh, make things sound good for China and bad for the United States. But in any case, it's talking about U.S. farmers and their uh, losing uh, their relationships in this trade war. So what's the deal? The deal is that China can do very well without U.S. soybeans because it can find plenty of other people to buy soybeans from. So they're telling, they're saying, now now this is in China's interest to warn us, but it sounds very plausible. U.S. farmers may never rebound from the short-term loss because of this misguided, idiotic trade war that the president has initiated with China over steel and other imports and theoretically U.S. jobs, the reason that trade wars start. But China is saying we're going to do just fine, and U.S. soybean producers are going to have no market for their soybeans, and they spent decades building up the Chinese market and you know, get, offering more advantageous contracts than other soybean-growing countries and competitors. And it worked. You know, they, they got really good markets for their soybeans. But Chinese are saying, sorry, you're never going to come back. And there's $12 billion of U.S. taxpayer money that's going to bail out U.S. farmers in the short term for this war they had no interest in starting uh, and that the taxpayers are now footing the bill for. European Union is buying a couple of soybeans, but it's not going to make up for the loss of China. So this is long-term destruction, uh, you know, a wrecking ball that the Trump administration is taking to U.S. farmers. But, well, there are two things. One, on the China side of the equation, and bad for us, is I think the story I read this morning said that they are the number one importer of soybeans from the U.S. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by but volume. The, but the flip side in terms of the threat, we've talked to you and others about this. You can't restore a relationship, a trading relationship. that It isn't like there's a light switch. You turn it on and off that you build over time. Having said that, the tempering notion, at least for me, is if China could get such a good deal from somebody else and they don't know the United uh, need the United States, why didn't they just get the better deal 
all along? And the answer is because it wasn't a better deal. So, right? I mean, isn't that fairly obvious? I assume that's how it works. So obviously, if, they, if because of the tariffs, the cost of soybeans is going to go way up, obviously they're going to seek other suppliers. But right. I, I'm not so sure that the, the long-term impact is as destructive. Maybe it is, as the Chinese are su- suggesting. Is that not a fair point, or is it? You mean the idea that when tariffs come off, and come down that U.S. growers will still have a lower price, a competitive price. Yeah, and I'm not saying they won't have to reestablish the relationship. I'm not quarreling at all with the short-term damage here, which may be immense. It just seems to me at the end of the day uh, that places like China are going to gravitate to places where they can get the best deal. Maybe that's overly optimistic. Uh, uh, I don't know. So uh, uh, what's your take on that? Oh, my, my take is that once other countries get a crack at this huge Chinese market that they've wanted uh, for decades. They'll start offering good deals, and they'll be terribly aware of what the U.S. farmers are offering, and they'll just beat it. Okay, well, let's get to my most fun story of the day. Marjorie doesn't care about trade policy. Because, you know, I always thought I was terribly unhip that I liked iceberg lettuce, and then, you know, why wasn't I getting arugula or, you know, spinach or other kinds of things? The New Yorker has written this ode to iceberg lettuce and says it's superior lettuce with lots of great stuff inside it. Marjorie, I have such good news for you. You are always in the vanguard, and this is something like, it's like a stuck clock twice a day. (laughs) You're always going to find support for this in any year of the I predict of the current century. In any year, you will have supporters for the iceberg lettuce. So, this is a story saying Iceberg lettuce has never gone away. It has this fabulous little hint of bitterness, and you can pickle it, and you can have a watery crunch deepening in the pale ruffle of the inner leaves and stems to a toasty bitterness with whispers of caraway and coriander seeds. I love that line. So, yes, Marjorie, look at your good taste and your superior palate. Okay. The thing is that there was... The woman um, who revised the Fannie Farmer cookbook, Fannie Farmer, the great cook who started in Boston, um, Marion Cunningham in the 80s through 2000, she kept revising the Fannie Farmer cookbook. Well, she loved iceberg lettuce, and she formed a club of foodies and cookbook writers solely to promote iceberg lettuce. So you see how far advanced you are, Marjorie, in your culinary taste. But wait a second, why did they call yeah. it, it fall? polyester yeah, I know they do. Of lettuce. Lettuces. No, not they. Somebody did. Why did it fall out of favor? I, I, it seems to me, I don't know anything about the history, but it seems to me as we all became foodies, we were taught based on nothing to look down our noses. That's right. And I, I used to go three times us. a year, Chet Curtis and I would have a special dinner at the Capitol Grill. And I remember Chet with a huge smile on his face, the newsman extraordinaire for those young people who are not uh, familiar with him. Uh, uh, he'd order a wedge, yeah, which was blue like blue cheese dressing. A, a blue cheese dressing, exactly. Half a head of iceberg lettuce. Well, I think crumbled bacon or some such thing, and blue cheese and that sort so of thing. So crunchy. So did it fall out of favor on the merits, or did it fall out of favor out of elitism of the foodies? What what happened? It's a combination between the two, to be fair. First of all, when you have the fabulous iceberg wedge salad, which I find myself ordering when I see it on a menu, Mm -hmm. because we all love the salt and fat of the blue cheese and the even more delicious salt and fat of bacon bits. (laughs) we do. And then there's this very neutral, cold, you know, it's like the woman at my office 
yesterday who saw the almond, the healthful butter, almond butter in our vending machine and said, I need an apple or something neutral to spread it on. So iceberg is neutral. That's why it fell out of favor. It has very little flavor compared to fancy arugula. You arugula. want bitterness? You want a hint of toasty bitterness? We, you know, have some arugula. So when these other greens started coming in, romaine was considered to be somehow, you know, lovelier, and you can have it in a Caesar salad. But it's very similar to iceberg lettuce. It's just a prettier green, but it's also got those very crunchy white cold ribs, you know just what like iceberg lettuce. You're an elitist because what I've always said, Corey Cummer. Is I love the pale ruffle of the inner leaves and stems. I've always said this to a toasty bitterness with whispers of caraway and coriander seeds. Haven't I always said that? You and Chet having your iceberg wedge salad. Um, Mimi Sheraton, the longtime New York Times restaurant critic, and curmudgeon. She's just she's occupied the curmudgeon post in the food field now. As soon as Sam Sifton in the New York Times wanted to revive iceberg salad, recently said. She tweeted, can't find iceberg lettuce, take waxed paper, fold it up into accordion (laughs) pleats, cut it, and put it on a plate. Well, we had this wonderful side story about this uh, guy, the first base coach from the Marlins-Braves game. He's a ball guy, and they show him how before he goes out in the field when it's really hot, he puts wet lettuce inside his helmet. Iceberg, keep his isn't head cool. Yeah, wet iceberg lettuce, exactly. See, but- it's got that texture, and that's why it caught on in the 1880s and 90s when it first started to be shipped across the country because exactly that sturdiness that it fits inside of a helmet and keeps its shape <laughs> is what made it so suitable for shipping across the country. You no, know, so- you didn't know, in all fairness, neither of you read that story carefully because uh-huh. the first base coach who used the lettuce, yep. he was asked why he did it. And he said, I love the pale ruffle of the inner leaves and stems to a toasty. We're talking to Corby Cummer. Our, you know, Corby, there's an interesting story. We talked to you a lot about SNAP, about food stamps, about what this administration has tried to do to what is basically a life and death issue for a lot of low-income people in this country. A, a newspaper, I can't remember, somewhere in the center of the country did a freedom of information request to try to get uh, data on how much different grocery stores were trying were uh, taking in SNAP dollars, and the government has fought it. Uh, uh, it may end up going to the Supreme Court. Why are they fighting, and why should we care? So it's the South Dakota Argus right, leader, right, right, right. you East Coast elitist, <laughs> okay. calling it flyover you country. Win. Go ahead. So they sued uh, a Freedom of Information Act uh, for the USDA, saying. Well, if uh, Grumman uh, and, and Boeing are required to disclose how much money they're getting from U.S. taxpayers in the form of defense contracts. Which they do. We need to know. We just feel like knowing what retailers in our South Dakota region, our important metropolitan area, are benefiting from U.S. SNAP food assistance dollars. And this turns out to be really hard to get. Uh, The last time the USDA released it was in 2013, and that created something of a kerfuffle because Walmart was revealed to be getting billions of dollars in SNAP funding, and it was big stores like uh, uh, like Target and Costco, because that's where people go, uh, th- that were getting the SNAP dollars. And this was thought to be a bad thing because Walmart doesn't pay its workers enough. Oh, okay. They have to have food stamps. So what irony that oh, they're oh, raking oh. in the dough 
But I view it as wherever people can get fresh produce and you and food and use their SNAP dollars, that's fine. But for some reason, the Food Marketing Institute, which is the powerful trade organization for soup. Uh, supermarkets has done everything it could to prevent the release of this data. Partly it's because there was an expose by the the paper we've both read, the uh, website New Food Economy, yeah. uh, that was revealing that on the day that SNAP, uh, the monthly SNAP dollars are released, uh, Walmart and other places would heavily promote sodas because you're allowed to. So far, there are no SNAP restrictions on sodas, as many uh, theorists, including my colleagues at uh, Tufts Freeman School of Nutrition, think should be restricted from SNAP dollars. So this was considered cruel exploitation on the part of uh, marketers and soda companies to have like two-for-one and big promotional discounts and sell a lot of soda the day SNAP money came out. There, there aren't that many downsides to revealing this data. Nonetheless, uh, supermarkets have done everything they could to obfuscate and uh, prevent it. Uh, Washington courts and other courts kept backing the South Dakota Argus leader mm -hmm. and said, yes, we're going to release this information, just like the defense industry, just like every other part. But now the Republican legislature has just passed a measure saying, no, this is exempt and it's going to be classified and it doesn't have to be released. So they can erase the uh, seven years of progress through the courts of the South Dakota newspaper suit. We're talking to Corby Cummer, our food guy. So Corby Cummer, um, I don't know. It does seem to me to be a bit of a problem to release a cookbook and have ingredients inside that might, you know, poison you. Yeah, who is this person? Is this some big deal that we uh, missed along the way? No, this is a, um, uh, well, first of all, she seems to be of uh, Fox Meets Bear. What is a that? A media influencer. It She's is? an Instagram influencer named Jonna Holmgren. Yeah. And she released a cookbook uh, with Rodale Press, and that's important in this, in which she cooks recipes with raw ingredients including mushrooms and elderberries well elderberries are poisonous and many raw mushrooms are poisonous and you can never ever trust readers to know the difference you should never advocate Poison. that readers forage mushrooms and eat them it's just it's just a job for professionals they're mycologist clubs it's a great hobby it's gotten me into trouble it's gotten lots of people i know into trouble you just don't put it in a cookbook but she did, and for whatever reason, Rodale, now a division of Crown, um, published it and has recalled it. Uh, Rodale has made its reputation on healthful diets and organic food, and it's made a lot of money on books that are really interesting nutrition books. And so it's taken action and saying, Tales from a Forager's Kitchen is no longer marketed, and we're going to give you a refund if you bought it. So essentially they're you know, saying we don't want to poison our readers. Yeah. Is that a, that's a very But I mean, hold on for a second. Humane, this is, no? But this is a really odd situation What's because it's about? not as if you show up with your manuscript on Monday and the book is published on Tuesday. You have an editor, you go through the recipes, you decide what's going to be in the book. You know, I mean, Marjorie, you romantic iceberg lover. You, <laughs> yeah, you are assuming that there are fact checkers for books, whereas authors like me give away their entire book advances, spending them on freelance fact-checking because book publishers don't check facts. That is unbelievable. And you wouldn't even check 
uh, I mean, a forager's, Tales from a Forager's Kitchen is the name of the book, and right away, foraging, you think, you know, that's always one of the jokes, if you're Hansel and Gretel, you'd be a bit better know what the elderberries from the blueberries, so you don't get in trouble in the, you know, in the, on the, in the woods. I mean, it just sort of seems like a natural, a no-brainer yeah, just but to can look I at this. She, in, if you go to her website, yep. there's a disclaimer. She says, well, some wild plants are poisonous, so deal with it. Is that, now, she doesn't say this, so deal with it. That part I added. But she does write, some wild plants are poisonous. They're going to have serious adverse health effects. So I assume both she and the, the publishing company assumed the disclaimer was adequate, right. which obviously it is. Well, when, most you, publishers require authors to accept responsibility for any errors they make in books, which is to say legal liabilities. Mm. Most publishers won't allow themselves to be vulnerable to lawsuits. And in this case, Rodale is either doing the right thing or they were worried that uh, lawsuits would come after them. We're talking to Corby Cummer, our food guy. Okay, uh, Corby Cummer, one of the most shocking stories I've read in a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, there is an obesity epidemic among monks in Thailand. It's the weirdest story. So this was in the New York Times, and there's a study. First of all, Obesity is rising all across the board in Thailand. And why is that? Because fast food is cheap and it's entering all of Asia and Southeast Asia. So, uh, but, but obesity in our monks, says a researcher in, in Bangkok, is a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Professor of food nutrition. Well, so they, they kind of get a lot of their food from charity and food banks. And that food now is often sweetened beverages, energy drinks, and packaged fatty, salty foods. So that's what is cheap and available in Thailand and what people are donating to monks. So it's a kind of startling story because, of course, you know, you think of Buddhists as being, you know, fabulous vegetarian. Maybe the best food I've had in my life, certainly really? in the past 10 years, was a, a Buddhist monastery in Kyoto, Japan which was, you know, vegetarian, all completely handmade and all that. Well, that's not the reality of life for most monks. They live on what they get and what they're donated, and that's often you know, fast food. And by the way, there's, I didn't know this, that at least these, these Buddhist monks in, in Thailand, is that where, yeah, where we're talking about? Thailand. They only eat what they're given? Is that part of their, their yeah, thing? Yeah, they're supposed to go out and gather food every day. And you know what I thought was fascinating about this? What's that? that it said that the monks are forbidden to eat after midday. And that they're really not eating that many calories otherwise, but that it just goes to show how sugary drinks the energy. are a real culprit because they're just drinking yeah. after midday, and it's the drinking of the sugary drinks that's a big problem for them, right? Well, another weird part about that is we've recently read studies saying the food that we have before noon is much better metabolized and we don't have to worry nearly so much as oh. and in fact if we ate everything before noon and then starved ourselves in the afternoon and evening when we'd be delightful for our colleagues and family members uh, we would be much healthier. So this seems to go against that if they're, if they're having all this stuff before noon and they're still gaining so much weight. You know, but you know what's horrible about this story? Beyond the fact that these monks are doing the right thing and gone out there and, you know, only eating what they're given by their constituents, for lack of a better expression, some of them were actually getting healthy food. And did you hear what happened? The recipes that the people who donated used were from Jonna Holmgren's <laughs> cookbook. So... <laughs> 
Unfortunately, so they, they pulled it. No more <laughs> wild berries. It's really a really sad story now, that connects everything. Now, Corbin, before you go, we have a very important question. We're going to be asking listeners about little lies uh, they tell and why they tell them. Apparently, everybody lies about pouring bacon fat down the drain. Why don't you tell them where the story's from? This is not some crappy little story. It's the Wall Street Journal, one of the most respected newspapers in the country. So the question for you is, because well, we've discussed fatbergs with you, yep. which are these huge, huge multi-ton collections of grease in the sewers, disgusting, in the sewers of London, because people do this. One, do you pour bacon grease down the drain? And two, do you lie about it when you do it? You may answer in either order. Go ahead. So I view this as an allegory for worrying about cholesterol from red meat and other and other foods that you, you eat because the buildup in pipes and sewer systems and your very own kitchen sink it's against the walls. It's fat that stubbornly clings to the walls of pipes just mm. the way it stubbornly clings to your arteries. So do you want to do that to your sinks and your city sewer system by rinsing out your bacon pan right into the sink? No, you do not, wow. Jim and Marjorie. Okay, Pounding so what should you, where should you put it? I know what in, you do. In, in a coffee can. Exactly, and then you throw it out. But you never you answered the question. throw it out in the garbage? You, yeah, exactly. Okay. You lectured make, us, double check. but you never answered the question, which leads me to believe you're covering something up. <laughs> no, I will tell you that <laughs> I manage in every rental house in the various places besides Boston, yeah. our true home we yeah. live in, I yeah. manage to destroy disposals. So I've become extremely careful about everything I put down drains. He still hasn't answered the question. Do you pour bacon de- grease down the drain, yes or no? No, but I pour salad oil down it. Is that just as bad? I think it's probably just as bad. It doesn't. No, it isn't because it doesn't solidify as much. But here's a bonus fact your readers might not know. What? What's up? The reason you always These have to run listeners. cold water okay. when you're running your disposal yeah, is not to keep the engine from overheating, what as you know you would always think. It's to keep the fat from clogging. It's to break oh. up the fat. So it doesn't that you are putting down the disposal. That's the reason for cold water. By the way, one of our coworkers, Corby, says you put your bacon fat in the freezer and you use it to cook later. What do you think of that? I think that saving fat and reusing it, especially chicken fat, is always a good idea. Beautiful. Nice to talk to you, Corby. And you. Thank you very much, Corby Cummer. As always, a very enlightening conversation with Corby Cummer. And I'm thinking a lot about bacon now because we talked about the you bacon You love bacon, fat. don't you? Who doesn't love bacon, Jim? Nobody doesn't love Everybody bacon. Everybody loves bacon. Even if they're non-mediators, you kind of, you know, it's one of the things you're wistful about. I think you know one bacon. of the only sadnesses I have that we come to the library on Fridays? Do you know what my coworker, our coworker, Azita, brings most Fridays? She goes to Whole Foods and she gets a massive container of bacon. She does. I know. I've done that myself. I was thinking of taking a vacation day on Friday just for that reason. <laughs> In any case, we're done with that. Food writer Corby Cummer joins us every week. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic, a columnist for The New Republic, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. Up next, we're asking you, like we just asked Corby, uh, about whether you've lied to the plumber when it comes to pouring bacon grease down the drain and some other lies you might tell, like... When you go to the doctor and he asks you how many cocktails you consume (laughs) in a week. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library.